So the anesthesiologist, she walks in after about 20 hours of labor, coming in all hot and bothered, saying, uh, who, uh, of course they wanted an, ep- of course she wanted an epidural. Uh, she, uh, nobody does natural births anymore. Why would she, why, like, why wait this long until we get it? And, um, my mother-in-law was understandably very mad about it. And uh, she kind of caused enough of a ruckus to get the anesthesiologist on the defensive and get kicked out of the room for the epidural. And so it was just me and Mackenzie uh, getting this epidural. And then while, you know, the awkward silence following that kind of a kerfuffle, uh, she started asking us the very awkward uh, uh, small talk questions. And then she found out that we were residents, we were incoming residents for the health network. And her tone changed dramatically. And uh, that was that was a fun time. <laughs> Welcome to Health Stories, interviews inside the healthcare system. I'm Dr. Nicole Deffenbaugh, clinical communications specialist. And I am excited and delighted to be joined for our last interview of the season with doctors Eugene Kim and Mackenzie Kim. Eugene is a psych psychiatry intern and Mackenzie is family medicine so welcome to the podcast thank you always abbreviating right psych psychiatry (laughs) so um so she learned that you were residents Mm -hmm. so you said things changed so what exactly changed after she learned that you were incoming residents uh her tone softened a lot and then Um, she started to ask questions like oh when did you get inducted into labor and she's like oh we didn't get induced into labor this was a natural induction of labor and then she's like oh how long have you been without, uh, like, how long, what, like, uh, when did they start doing stuff, like, uh, in terms of, indu- like, uh, pushing the labor it along? It was later than 20 hours. It was, it was a long time. I, I had and been laboring for a long, long time. Long time. And, uh, yeah, and so she started asking other questions, like, uh, like, is this, you know, just, just, like, trying to feel mm-hmm. it out, and she's just realizing, like, oh, I, I, she never really admitted fault, but she was just like, oh, I came into this situation really on the wrong end of things. Mm-hmm. The big thing that was interesting and also I had to give her credit for is that she apologized. Mm-hmm. And it was in a, one of those, we actually, part of our curriculum was learning about like apologizing in healthcare um, for a medical school. And she did the very generic apologizing without admitting fault, mm-hmm. <laughs> which was yeah a very interesting choice. But it was better than not not admitting that she had come into a patient's room and said some pretty offensive things that people took offense to. And thankfully I was um, deep enough in labor that for me it just like washed over me and I couldn't even absorb it to be offended by it. But my mom was offended and she actually afterwards did um, say to my mom, oh, I'm sorry, you know, I, that, you know, was probably not the best way to go into the room. Um, and my mom said, yeah, that was not the best thing. My mom's a nurse also. So. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so there's a lot of healthcare in the room. Yeah. Now, my question is, do you think she would have apologized knowing if you were just patients and never learned that you were a question. Yeah, if, if Mackenzie was like, like this girl from the DR, didn't speak much English. Yeah, I can, I can only imagine how people who were are not in healthcare, how that experience would have played out. Mm-hmm. And if this, someone had opted to get the epidural earlier and been a little bit more with it to actually take those comments in and how that could have affected their labor. Mm-hmm. I don't, yeah. 
So let's tell the listeners um, what a resident is. So we're going to back up a little bit and kind of explain some of the jargon and why you've been invited onto the show. Yeah. So, so a doc. Uh, so a resident is a doctor. That's important. I'm going to pause there. <laughs> it's a doctor because I think there's a misunderstanding that as learners, you're a doctor in training, which you are a doctor in training, but you haven't actually passed your boards and gone through medical school. You have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. So we've gone through four years of medical school and the undergraduate prerequisites for it. And to be a resident is this weird fugue state between. Um, being a student, being a full student where like we have a prescription pad, we can write stuff on it and we can give medicines out, um, as needed. And, but we're not on our own sort of like prescription pad. Like we all, we have to be working under an attending physician who is a physician who has been, who's finished residency, f- completed their boards and had been practicing for some period of time, whether it's a, a year or two decades. Mm-hmm. And so it's that training period between student to being your own, you know, quote, physician. Yeah, you're still being supervised and, yes. and you have other attendings who, and an attending is that individual who's above um, academically. Um, we can talk about hierarchy systems in a moment. <laughs> um, but who's above and who makes sure it kind of oversees everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so the reason I asked you on this podcast is for our listeners is to hear about the future of medicine because we have, you know, doctors who are newly minted doctors. So congratulations on passing. Thank you. And who are starting their residency training. Um, and tell us a little bit about what it was like being in um, medical school. So thinking about your program and some of the things that you've learned. Um, and I'm thinking specifically about how medical school is and is not different than med school from, you know, 5, 10, 20, 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. So we have the advantage of being a part of a program that um, incorporates emotional intelligence, leadership, health systems, curriculum into the curriculum that we actually received. Um, so and that actually is fairly cutting edge. Um, there are not very many programs nationwide that do that. They're starting to be more, thank goodness. Um, but we, we have had the opportunity to actually kind of be taught that. Whereas in the past, that is something that actually a lot of attendings have voiced to mm-hmm. us and our fellow students that they wish that that had been an opportunity given to them and that they've had to retrospectively go back and go to conferences and actually get a a continuing education in order to receive that. Um, So that's been incorporated into our medical school curriculum and we've had a much heavier emphasis on that. What is emotional intelligence? Just really quickly. Yes. The self, so there, like you can break it down into this model of like four different quadrants, but it's basically just being aware of your own emotions. Like, so there's like emotional intelligence and then there's like the, uh, the IQ, like intelligence quotient, you know, like it's the, the more not necessarily feelings based, but more just like, uh, self awareness side of uh, raw intelligence. That they're, they're very complementary and emotional intelligence can be trained and improved upon, mm-hmm. um, and that it can make you a better worker in certain, in almost any field. If you have higher emotional intelligence, it means you're better in teams. It means that you are, uh, more, you're, you're less likely to blow up at people because you are more aware of your emotions, your emotional state. Nice, good. And I will just speak for myself and say what a great thing that they're teaching, (laughs) you know, medical students to learn because it's so needed in healthcare. There's so much emotion and raw emotion and how do you manage your own feelings and then sort of manage your emotions in a team. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's excellent. What else are some sort of key things you learned in your med school that are perhaps unique in this day and age? Mm, So uniqueness like the 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 fact that we talked about health systems is something that's pretty unique like most 
like I'd say 90 to 95% of graduating medical students now, not to say, not even talking about five, 10 years ago, wouldn't even be educated on the impact of insurance and like what does, what does the Affordable Care Act mean for a, a provider and a health system? Um, or even what are the different models of uh, providing care outside of a huge health network, like a big hospital system? Um, this, these are things that aren't being taught for a lot of schools. And the fact that we were taught about it and also like how do we, they even had us do a couple exercises where we had to like write like fake lobbying letters to um, help to like, like our state senators and the yeah, legislature trying to figure out how to like communicate on behalf of our patients what the best like what what our position is as a physician. Interesting. Yeah. So patient advocacy is definitely a big thing and, and it's incorporated into like the leadership component as well as the health systems component and that's it kind of like I alluded to it's it's really missing it was missing entirely out of curriculum and now it's just a rare thing and up and coming mm -hmm. and then another thing uh that we did and i also am aware that more schools are starting to do this with standardized patients where like fake patients they're actors paid actors to simulate a, a real patient encounter and uh with our with our curriculum they would always have like these quote like select cases where we would have like uh, of, there was a usual, unusual social circumstance in the patient that you had to kind of dig out. And if you were just focused on just the get them in, get them out in seven and a half minutes, you totally miss it. But like maybe they're a human trafficking victim or maybe they are uh, a patient with, uh, with autism spectrum disorder and they're just, they're being low, they're with their, they're with their caregiver and managing those dynamics. Um, so those were very interesting things that most medical students wouldn't experience. Yeah. And we were really fortunate also just with the program that we were with, um, it had a coaching and mentoring component as well. So we were given uh, two coaches who were professionals, not always a um, doctor, but always, well, always a doctor, but not always a medical doctor, I guess oh, okay. is the way to phrase that, um, who would uh, guide us professionally and help us develop kind of professional plans. Um, and then we had a coaching cohort that we were able to form bonds with mm -hmm. um, and uh, to really go through this curriculum and this experience together. A medical school is very isolating mm -hmm. um, and there are a lot of issues kind of inherent to that but it, it allowed us to have a group of people that you could kind of bounce off of if you weren't like Eugene and I and found your partner in medical school. <laughs> um, love and medicine. Love and medicine, yes. Um, yeah, so it, it that, was a, that was a really unique thing that I haven't heard of any other program offering that. Mm -hmm. And then you had some humanities offerings too, right, earlier? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and those were uh, for yeah. And they, there was just like a like every month or so we'd have a session and we'd have a reading and uh, just kind of talking break in a little breakout sessions about it. Mm -hmm. And that was uh, it had variable utility, but <laughs> sometimes it was pretty cool. Sometimes it was. You know. mm -hmm. And then in addition to that, you're learning what do they call it? The fire hose of of education, mm -hmm. where it's like a, a turned on fire hose of knowledge, and so mm -hmm. you're learning all the clinical information. So this mm -hmm. is in addition to mm -hmm. all the medical knowledge mm -hmm. you've learned. And I will say it's that's one of the big kind of lamentations of previous generations of doctor is that this generation of physician um, we have at our disposal all of the internet and Google. And so all of that kind of electronic um, education as opposed to the book learning and them having to sit in the library for days and nights and, and retaining it that way where we, we, we have a lot of novel ways to learn things. There's something called, um, uh, there's different programs that kind of in, 
include like cartoons to help you retain information about antibiotics or or drugs or what have you. Um, So there are a lot of interesting new ways to learn that are different. They're just different ways than, than what previously was done. So when you think back to your medical school experience, um, and being that this is called health stories, I'm thinking of stories that sort of um, epitomize what it was like to be a med student or stories that stand out for you that our listeners could hear. Perhaps a story that made you want to stay in medicine or the story that maybe made you want to leave. From when, so this is just something because I recently had a, a, a very, I went to a re- really good talk about physician suicide. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm thinking about is the times that probably two fellow students killed themselves and in your, in our, not, not in our class, but in, in like the, our medical, our medical school. school. And it was just totally quiet, like very, very limited response. There were some grief counselors. It was like this, this student died unexpectedly mm-hmm. and there's the wake, you know, and, but that was it. And it was very little, uh, structure in terms of being able to pro, you know, like, how are we going to stop these medical students from killing themselves? Like when I like going into residency, I know uh, I'm not going to see I'm not going to see 100 of my class alive again. Like mm-hmm. the, some of them are going to kill themselves. It's just going to happen, and that's an unfortunate reality of this uh, medical education system. Wow. And uh, just I'm just like I just hope it's not someone that I really care about, you know. Unfortunately, um, and so that's been something is just watching the slow attrition of students, whether due to suicide or other uh, other circumstances related to mental health or their inability to keep up with the curriculum. Just mm-hmm. watching these, like a class of like 55 get whittled down to like 45. Mm-hmm. And the fact that there are all these other people that should be in our class that aren't in the class, you know, it's just, it's tough. And I would like to point out for the listeners that um, those in the healthcare realm have the highest suicide rates of all professions, mm-hmm. um, especially for women. It's actually even higher than it is for men in healthcare. Um, and so, how much is the healthcare system teaching you about wellness and uh, about self care? Is that something that you got training in? So, <laughs> I think this is probably a contentious spot with anybody who's in healthcare right now, um, because a lot of the burden is placed on the healthcare worker, um, where we need to go out and do the self care. And it, at this point, if if you're seeing this rate of suicide, if you're seeing this rate of um, quote unquote burnout, it is not necessarily a problem with the people; it's a problem with the thing. <laughs> The system, the system itself yeah. that's it's in like, place. It's like, oh, we have these weird, weird analogy. But like for <laughs> for the dairy industry, it's like the the things to extract the milk from the cow udders has six. So and cows have eight udders. Mm-hmm. So rather than have it make have the thing that extracts the milk be eight, they just cut off two nipples. And like, oh yeah, it's weird. Very bizarre. And that's sort of what happens with this wellness. Is it's like, oh, all these people are killing themselves. Well, you know, it's just go meditate, go meditate, you know, and it's like the issue is not it's like we're square pegs being shoved into circular holes, Mm -hmm. not that Mm -hmm. we're defective circular pegs. Yeah. And that, yeah. And I think that's the big thing is that it's the the language that's used around it is that the people are defective and the the people are what's wrong. And it's not the people. It's the Mm -hmm. system that they're in. So there isn't sort of like systemic wellness or, well, it makes me think about the letter that you're writing though, right? Mm-hmm. So you're trying to make some changes mm-hmm. in the political mm-hmm. infrastructure and, you know, mm-hmm. the legal system potentially, but you're talking like as a healthcare system, we're, mm-hmm. we're still not addressing suicide, burnout. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean this, so this, 
talk that I heard was by Pamela Weibel. Um, and she's doing a real, a lot of really interesting work about physician suicide. Mm-hmm. And, uh, she frames it as like, uh, as a human rights violation where we as physicians and residents are being exploited by our workplace for the purpose of, uh, more healthcare uh, provided at a lower cost. So mm-hmm. our salaries as, as residents are, they're decent. You know, I'm going to get paid, what, uh, 65000 a year for the first year, and it's going to jump up and up to like 69 to 74. But at, when I'm like, so when I'm a final, when I'm a fourth year resident, I'm going to be making like $79,000 a year. It's a great salary. Not, not knocking that. But when I, the next year I'm going to be making, I could make up to $250,000, you know? So it's like there. And then when you talk about uh, general surgeon residents, when they're fifth year residents, they are attendings. They have done way more than anybody else can expect them to. And they're not getting paid. They're, they should be getting paid half or a quarter million dollars when they're getting paid less than a hundred thousand dollars. And that kind of stifling our economic ability to care for ourselves is a big thing. You know, like, we shouldn't have to, like, in, a, in theory, like, if we're in the hospital 80 hours a week, we shouldn't have to scrub the toilets. You know, like, those are, like, the, those little tasks that take up such a huge bandwidth on, for everybody. Um, but we are unable to do it because we're in the hospital and doing all sorts of things, caring for patients outside of, like, care hours, charting on patients that we couldn't cover when we're in the clinic. All of those things are, are aspects that we're sort of, uh, we're taking on because we're people that care, but we're being, that caring is almost being exploited by a system that is trying to extract as much, uh, worth out of us. And I think about the sort of an empathic moment with patients who get really frustrated about how long they're in the waiting room and they get frustrated mm-hmm. about the system itself. Mm-hmm. I'm sort of hearing a little bit of a, perhaps a connection between the, the patient world and the clinician world to say, we're both frustrated in different ways for how the system is taking advantage of us, exploiting mm-hmm. us, mm-hmm. not recognizing our, our time and and not being empathetic to our empathetic to our own needs Mm -hmm. and that's one of the big actually um in the surveys that i've seen out of like ama and whatnot is that that's kind of one of the big corresponding deficits that we're seeing in both physicians and patients is this desire to be able to spend time with your patients and the patient's desire to actually see their physician instead of being in the waiting room but instead, physicians are expected to churn out patients quickly and see more patients than necessarily they should or, or can um, in, in a good way um, and that allows for connections um, with their patients. So, so it's, yeah, it's definitely, it's, it's a problem and it needs to change. I don't know if it'll change in our generation. Mm-hmm. I hope so. Yeah. Um, but I think what is nice is that we did receive training to hopefully maximize the short interactions that we have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I hear that you're sort of frustrated by the system too, you know, mm-hmm. that you wish you had more time with your Absolutely. patients. You Absolutely. wish you didn't have to have so many RVs relative value yep. units and mm-hmm. have to fulfill what the system's telling you. So I want to go back then to ask you um, and tell our listeners, so why in this system of <laughs> RVUs and stress and burnout and suicide. Why on earth did you choose to go into medicine and why are you still here? What what patient, I'm thinking like a story, a patient encounter, a story mm-hmm. that really sort of comes to your mind that you, you hold on to during the rough spots. Uh, so I've cultivated, uh, I call it a sunshine drawer, where it's like little patient encounters that I've had just in those, just to keep me going on ba- days when I don't want to keep going. Mm-hmm. And, um, one of them was uh she's she has like stage four cancer and she's the she's like the adopt like there was a weird family situation but they were both adopted sisters 
in this family. And she, the one sister that was talking to me has like stage four ovarian cancer, which she's probably dead right now. I don't know. Um, and she said like, remember my face mm. when you are, when you have a tough day in the hospital because you have changed my life. And I was like, oh, that's so nice. And you know, her sister was in, in like in the inpatient psych unit for like two months. And uh, over the course of those two months, we got her stabilized. And so it was really nice to see that. And uh, I've got a couple of those like, like mm-hmm. tucked away just in case. Yeah, I think being a student, it's challenging because you're in this kind of um, like odd position where you are kind of pseudo administering care, but you still have to, the attending will come in after you and maybe do something completely different than what you um, kind of say that you're, you're going to do. But I think one of the instances... Um, I had a gal who was, uh, she was suicidal and she was, it was actually impatient and she was suicidal and I um, went in and talked to her and um, we had really good rapport and we were just able to talk really honestly and openly and when the attending came in, um, he wasn't, he didn't have as much time, he was a little bit more rushed and so he recommended that she go inpatient so that she could be safe and looked after. And um, she looked at me and said, what do you think I should do? Mm, I said, oh, no, (laughs) this goes to the like medical hierarchy that you were kind of alluding to earlier. But um, I was like, I think that that's a great idea. And so it's having those moments of connection as a student, having those moments of connection with patients where, you know, you made an impact on them and that they made an impact on you also just through that little kind of ego boost, honestly, of of okay, I made a difference in your life. And that feels really, really good. Um, Cause I know for me, like the, the reason why I went into medicine was because I love science and I love helping people. And so it was the perfect marriage of the two. Mm-hmm. So thinking about psychiatry and family medicine. So I want our listeners to hear, um, you had talked about surgery. We know that when you're in a higher specialty, you make more money. Um, I think it was NYU who had a program recently where they were paying. They just paid for all of their is mm-hmm. it med students though, or yeah, to mm-hmm. so they're paying for their tuition in the hopes of increasing the number of mm-hmm. family medicine, mm-hmm. um, public health, community health, mm-hmm. uh, you know, psychiatry. So um, for our listeners, why psychiatry and and why family medicine? Mm-hmm. You go first. Sure. So why family medicine? I'll give my pitch. Um, So I initially was very afraid of family medicine um, because I am the kind of person who, when I'm in a relationship, I tend to give my all to that relationship. And so I envisioned in family medicine having patients that are lifelong patients. And if anything went wrong, it would be really devastating to me. And so as I was going through medical school, I kind of held on to that thought, but we received a lot of training with the emotional intelligence. And I realized that the one of the most important components and aspects of medicine to me is the relationship with my patient. And in family medicine, that's one of the really unique places where I can connect in almost any and every way you can imagine with my patient. And so I, that was that was really what sold me on fa- family medicine was that relationship. Because I know patients, myself included, and I'll, I'll say this um, on the podcast, 
sort of my admittance, right, um, that I had never seen um, or had a family medicine physician. Mm -hmm. um, I always just saw specialists, and I hear people who are don't want to see family medicine mm -hmm. physicians because they don't really see the value in having a family med doc. I know you're just going to start your residency mm -hmm. right next week, um, and so you're going to learn a lot about the world of family medicine, but why, why should we care and, and potentially have a family medicine physician? So... A family medicine doctor can act really as an anchoring point. Um, we can kind of have this, we have this longitudinal relationship with patients so we can really get to know a patient, whereas a specialist knows a little fraction of you. Mm -hmm. um, and they'll be able, they will be able to heck the, help the heck out of that little fraction. Um, but a family medicine doctor, we can really lay the foundation for every aspect of your health. Um, and then in addition to being able to form that really cool relationship and bond, and uh, I think every family medicine doctor I've, I've worked with at least is really, that's something that they're really passionate about is having that bond and being able to kind of root on their patients, not just in health, but in every aspect of wellness. Excellent. Psychiatry, huh? Uh, so I entered medical school, I applied to medical school with the intention of going into psychiatry. Um, I am under the firm belief that there is a great mental and spiritual crisis in the greater world, not just in America. Um, you know, you'll look at some of the stats and like one in eight kids these days are expected to try to kill themselves. Mm. And that's just too much. Exactly. <laughs> that's too much. One in a hundred is a lot. One in eight is trying to take your life. That's a lot, especially for somebody that's just starting out, you know, in their adolescence or childhood. And so I wanted to enter uh, psychiatry for the purpose of psychedelic medicine, which is the uh, these substances which have psychedelic properties or mind, open, mind expansion properties, uh, such as MDMA or psilocybin are the two ones, magic mushrooms or ecstasy is like street names for them. And I want to help bring that out in the fore because these are substances which are which have great value and power, but like a surgeon, you don't want just some dude off the street rooting around and you're like trying to find your appendix. You want somebody who like kind of like, respects it and treats it with a, you know, and has a sterile field, you know, all sorts of like all the precautions necessary. And, um, you know, for me personally, one of the frustrations that I've had is that um, the model of medical education is one in which you're creating uh, future physicians, you know, it, it, uh, this is just my perspective on it. Like looking at it from my, where I'm standing is that the, the medical model of education is one in which we're trying to create physicians, which will gradually change and incrementally change the system, not ones that are trying to burn it down and change or create a whole new thing. So as somebody who is going to be a part of a, a new wave of psychiatry, it's very tough because what I want to be practicing is not something that I'm going to be receive any training in for the next four years. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm just sort of like hunkering down, kind of putting my head down and doing the, the traditional psychiatry work that I know I need to do in order to be a good psychiatrist, in order to understand the contraindications, to understand the patient populations, in order to understand the medications that I may be faced with and how would they interact with future psychedelics that I would want to prescribe for certain patients. However, I'm not going to once at all interact with a physician who in a professional setting uh, under under the residency interact with a physician who's ever administered a psychedelic mm -hmm. so the so in order for me to try to get that education i have to find other ways that are not related to my medical graduate medical education interesting because i can imagine going into psychedelics may not necessarily be um uh, welcomed by other mm -hmm. physicians or it's even very psychiatrists, right mm -hmm. yeah it's very challenging because this is a, a model which 
is almost diametrically opposed to the, the ways in which a physician has spent 30, 40 years of their entire career uh, trying to help people with. Mm-hmm. So it, is, it can be very, very challenging. And so there's there's some navigation of that is very is is tough, but it's something that I it's just what I have to do in order to be because I could just go the underground route and just be some dude wearing feathers and give people psilocybin, you know. Um, but there's and there are people doing that, and there are really great people doing that underground work. But I think that there's a new wave that needs to be the node for those people in the crunchy underground and people wearing the white coats and in the hospital floors. Mm-hmm. So doing the work inside the system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. So I wanna. Um, uh, transition now for our listeners. We do an, a sort of a little educational piece and thinking about um, any advice that you have, um, knowing that you're going to be residents working with other clinicians. So it could either be attendings or, or nurses. And I'm sure those who are listening who are nurses and, and other attendings and staff probably had to have advice to give to you. But I'm wondering sort of what advice you, you might have for them being interns. Mm-hmm. Um. I think it, it's nice. Uh, the program that I'm, I'll be joining is very um, welcoming and opening, and that's something that uh, I, knowing myself, I um, don't, I guess I cowtail to authority. Mm-hmm. So it's hard for, I have a difficult time asking questions when there's an authoritative figure. Um, so I really relish the, uh, the, um, kind of more congenial open relationships and um, being very communicative. Um, and so that I think uh, just uh, communicating is really important in healthcare, especially, um, but in all walks of life, being communicative is really important. And that's something that um, I want to embrace as I go into residency. Nice. And so I hear you say like role modeling. Mm-hmm. So having your faculty and attendings role yeah, model yeah. And, when and you're supposed to be role modeling absolutely. with your patients. Too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and in the patient, in patient re- interactions as well, I want to be able to talk freely and openly with my patients and um, team members, nurses, MAs, everybody. I think being able to um, talk to one another without fear of, you know, mm. someone snapping at you or, or what have you, kind of that um, weird old medical hazing. We were talking about how medicine has changed and it's much less of that um, odd hazing where you talk down to whoever and belittle whoever is um, underneath you. Um, it's much more of kind of an equal playing field and that that's really nice. Yeah, nice. Uh, for fellow residents and like new attendings, I think I would recommend that you try to get sick and experience what it's like to be on the other side of yeah. like the, the, the threshold. Um, it can be really tough to, you know, if you're a young 20 something, uh, you're just out of college or, you know, and you just go straight to medical school and you're in your residency and you're just all flustered and you're just like, why is this fat guy not doing what I tell him to do? And it's like, you don't just to not understand what it's like to be an older person and not what it's like to be a sick person. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can really lose perspective on the matter and like what it's like to be on that other side. And then for patients, I think just recognizing that like if you're in the hospital and you have a jerk of a doctor, it's like they might have just been doing CPR for 30 minutes and you don't know uh, what they just came from because the hospital's a crazy place. <laughs> it's a really crazy place. And so you can, as a, doc, as a physician, I'll be going from one guy screaming at me, trying to claw my eyes out and pull my tie and choke me out to another, somebody who's just weeping, crying and just had their child die, you know? And it's like going that kind of bungee jumping is really tough. And, uh, 
you know, that might not be the explanation for all jerk doctors, but it's, it, I think it's enough to like kind of start the, 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 the empathy train. Yeah. And I'm glad you just said the word empathy. Cause that's what I'm hearing. You know, when you're giving advice to other um, clinicians in training, it's until you've been a patient and I've heard this over and over again, until you've been a patient yourself, it's hard to really understand not just what it's like to be a patient, but to understand what it's like to be a member in the system on the other side of the system. Mm-hmm. So you're both in the system, but your roles are very different. And I, I want to go back to the opening story, mm-hmm. right? You were treated very differently mm-hmm. because on the one side, you were just a patient being yelled at. And the minute you disclosed that you're a member within the, you know, secret system. society of mm-hmm. clinicians, yeah, they treat you differently. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think empathy is really helpful. So I'm really glad that you addressed that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Eugene, you've already sort of transitioned into the patient side. Um, I, I brought you both in because I want our listeners to understand that um, as residents, you have a role and an important one. Um, and I often hear uh, and know of patients, and I'll say until I worked in, in healthcare, I was one of those too, that didn't want to be seen by someone in training because the appointment is longer, mm-hmm. because the assumption is you don't know as much. So why would I put my health in your hands if you're not as trained and mm-hmm. if the appointment's going to be twice as long? Mm-hmm. So what advice and, and words of wisdom can you give for those who are listening who might be resistant to have you as their physician? They're smiling at each other. <laughs> <laughs> like, who wants to go first? <laughs> uh, I'll go. There's something very nice about being with somebody who's kind of navigating the territory with you. Um who hasn't seen this a thousand times mm-hmm. uh, because when you, you know, like uh, if you're the thousands, thousands case of like chronic kidney disease that this nephrol, this kidney doctor has seen, uh, he's just going to be like, all right, numbers are fine. Just get out of here. Um, but if you are a resident in internal medicine and you're on the, your kidney rotations, you're uh, that you're going to pay a lot more attention. You're going to try because you're like, I don't want to miss the thing. And then you'll, you, it's nice because you have the umbrella of the attending physician watching over you. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of like go into the weeds a little bit. And that's assuming you have the time and the energy to do so. But um, I'd say like, you know, there's, yeah, there's a great room for the specialist who's seen this a thousand times, mm-hmm. but um, there's, there can be something missing in those experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I that. One of my, yeah, thanks. <laughs> um, so the other thing I would say is, yes, more time. We always kind of get caught up on time. It's our most precious commodity. Um, but that gives you that that time to make sure that whatever health problems that you have are being addressed. And you can bet your bottom dollar that the resident is going to dig as much as they can to uncover as much as they can. Um, and we are we are closer to training and we're, we're um, a lot closer to any of the new guidelines um, and it's going to be a little maybe a little bit more fresh in our minds than some of the attendings so um, we might have we have a different perspective and that's it's always good to have different eyes and perspectives looking at the same problem and I would add um, is that you get two for the price of one I mean what you're really mm-hmm. saying is that even though you're a doc in training you're a doc in training so mm-hmm. you're getting the latest guidelines you might mm-hmm. be digging in the weeds and looking at the details mm-hmm. and when you're done now you have an attending with the experience who's also reviewing the case and mm-hmm. so people who are listening may not know that the residents are having conversations with their attendings when they say I have to to leave the room and they don't come back for 10, 15, 20 minutes, which is where I hear people get frustrated. What they don't know 
know, is now you have two doctors looking at your case and really going through the the details of your situation. And so you really are getting two for the price of one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That should really be an all resident. You should get like mugs, like two for the price of one. <laughs> That'll be our slogan. <laughs> We are at the end of our time, um, and I do like to ask, and I will since this is our last um, interview for this season, uh, What if, any other words, thoughts, anything else has come up for you you'd like to say to our listeners? I really liked um, that you highlighted the empathy. Um, I think that that is important for everybody is to be as empathetic as we can and I know that that's really challenging sometimes sometimes you might not have the mental or emotional space for that but as a clinician or as a patient being empathetic is in so many ways really um, really freeing because then you don't have to feel those nasty draining emotions of anger or of um, just all, all kinds of not very fun thing. So I think that that I really appreciated that you, you brought that up. I would talk about the, there's a stat that I heard from Pamela, from Pamela, the the physician working on physician suicide, who's that um, 1 million, about 1 million Americans every year are affected by physician suicide by the lack of physicians. So they, they call up their doctor and they're not there and they don't know why they're not there. Um, and then no one will tell them why they're not there and why you can't book another appointment with them. And uh, these people that are providing care, and maybe it's not care that you like even that much, um, they're trying real hard. And that, you know, sometimes we need a hug as much as they need a hug, as the patient needs a hug. And it's, it can, it's uh, you know, wearing the white coat can seem uh, like a person wearing a white coat can seem so otherworldly, um, but they're very much in the muck as much as we all are. And that uh, sometimes, you know, as a physician, we always want to make sure that we give everything that we can for our patients. Um, but also it's sometimes nice as a patient to just ask the physician, like how, like actually, how are you doing? Because that question can uh, you know, walk in and we're like, hey, how are you doing? And they're like, great, how are you doing? I'm like, I'm great. And then you just kind of go on with the thing. But to really ask the physician every once in a while, not every time. Sometimes you're like, I'm really late. I need to keep going. Um, but those questions can really help because I know that, like I said, it's just we're not like with the 100 residents entering right now our program, they're like the, our hospital system. I don't, I'm not assuming that all of us are going to make it out of life. And uh, it'd be cool. Yeah, it'd be it'd be really cool if we did, but I'm not I'm not gonna bet money on it. Um, and so just you know, be kind to each other. Mm-hmm. We're all humans in this together. So mm-hmm. Take a moment, pause, and thank the person sitting across from you. And so, in 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 the spirit of that, thank you <laughs> for <laughs> thank being you. on the podcast today. It was wonderful having you on the show. So, um, as a reminder, uh, we are on Facebook, Twitter, and there's a blog, NicoleDeffenbaugh.com slash blog. We are hoping this is not our last podcast. Um, we are hoping this is just the last one of the season. So we will keep all of our listeners updated. So please stay tuned for more information about the continuation of Health Stories. This is Nicole Deffenbaugh with Health Stories.